This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I'm so fired up for today because we have Kit Sauter. He's communications and research at Advantage BC. He's also the, at the City of Vancouver's Renters Advisory Committee and the principal at Sauter Strategy Consulting. Here's the thing about Kit Sauter. I feel like he wears many hats. Really, there's two things to know about him if, if none of that really makes sense. One, been in politics in British Columbia for the last 15 years. Right. Very engaged. And he details that involvement. And two, and why we specifically had him on, although I'm so glad we did. He is an advocate for the Broadway plan. He's a renter on Kingsway who is very, in very Broadway active corridor. in the Broadway corridor and very, very active in pushing for the Broadway plan to get through. And we talk all about that. And as an aside, and this is kind of the cherry on top that I didn't really realize, Kit has a very deep understanding of, right. of where we are in time generationally. Yes. I think he it's almost like he has a grand theory of things, right? right. Like it, it comes out that he, you know, he talks about the Nile and the Amazon. Like it's a global theory I think of the that, world um, that you can, <laughs> we're yeah. talking about here. Well, I, I think in in relation to supply, I think he actually says denial is, is not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> if I remember, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but here's the thing. This conversation, I, I haven't said this in a long time, but this is maybe one of the best conversations we've had in a very long time. And, and we've had some fantastic conversations. I'm not trying to take away from other other conversations, other shows, but this was like, so engaging, we could have just kept going, right? Yeah, and it takes a little bit of a different chart than a lot of things we talk about. But so Kit Sauter and I think Jens von Bergman from two weeks ago, you know, Vancouver hates kids and a young guy with a wife and, and daughter renting on Kingsway, advocating for more housing. These two stories go together. But one thing's for sure, this made me think about Vancouver in entirely different terms. And it made me think of our political moment in entirely different terms. Right. So it was very great having a kid on the show. There's moments where we laugh. There's moments where we cry. And a couple of moments where I hurled. But that had nothing to do with what, uh, what Kit was talking about. Uh, this is a fantastic show. But before we get to that conversation with Kit, Matt, a couple housekeeping uh, items to take care of here. One is yesterday afternoon, we had the two gentlemen, Michael Ferreira, Oh, and, John uh, Benest. John Benest from Zonda at Kokomo Studios. They just did a presentation, or I think Michael just did a presentation at UDI last week. So right. opportune moment to have him on the show. And again, another fantastic conversation. That's coming out in a couple weeks. We've also uh, got a couple other things in the can as well. well. Yeah, before we, we get to anything else, we should say... Um, Let's timestamp this. This is coming out on the, the first. Sec- well, we're talking the on the first. It comes out on the second of June. 
the Broadway plan is going for debate and vote, I believe, on June 9th. Right. So I'm not sure what there is you can do at this point. I know that they've had tons of speakers lined up, but uh, it's something to watch. And hopefully this drives some engagement with the Broadway plan because this is a very important policy in the city of Vancouver, as you will hear. And we're definitely not trying to eat the lunch of the Canby report here, but we have a lot of political conversations <laughs> happening on this show. If you are thinking just about this upcoming fall uh, mayoral election, man, are there some issues that you should really, well, if really, this, if this doesn't understand. get you fired up, I've never felt like door knocking or canvassing uh, politically, of your real estate. politically <laughs> before. But yeah, Kit is uh, is inspiring for sure. Other than that, Adam, there's a rate hike this morning, fifty, 50 base, fifty basis points. I think not this surprised. Was, yeah, I don't think no one's surprised. I think it was much expected. Actually, the interesting thing in the market, and it's kind of, we're June 1st, we haven't got the stats from from May, but one thing that's been interesting is in the last week, I feel like the market's really picked up. Right. And it's picked up, and I wonder, is this uh, is this the dead cat bounce? <laughs> also the name of my band in uh, high school. Uh, the, here's here's uh, the ska band, by the way. Uh, the, here's, if, if you... I don't know who uh, I was talking to. I'm trying to think here, but I had a conversation with another agent, actually. Yeah, it was another agent. But his sense of, of it was like, hey, there's been some price adjustments in certain submarkets, And a lot of people right now are still looking for homes. They still have rate holds. And it's, it's not like the sky's falling, right? It's like there's some opportunities here. And it's interesting because something that came out of our conversation with with Zonda was Michael Ferrer had basically said, the opportunity is that you get to buy in a market that you can have conditions, that you can work at a relaxed pace, that you can negotiate. Like that's the opportunity. The opportunity doesn't necessarily have to be some kind of substantial drop in price, which is not guaranteed. Well, and and yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. It's kind of interesting to think of, of what's potentially happening. One is, and we talk about it all the time, you know, any change that seems dramatic puts this market on its heels for a couple of weeks. Shock I think, and awe. I think the last 50 basis points increase was that, right? right? It was like, whoa, everything kind of just ground to a halt almost. And we carried some inventory for three, four weeks. Everything's under contract now. Everything's getting All of our listings yeah. uh, is, are under contract or have sold in the last week, week and a half. So it's like, maybe maybe that's part of it is just the shock and awe. And now it's like, hey, I need a, I need a roof over my head and I, you know, I can afford to buy this. And the rental market's nuts and business as usual. And then the second thing is maybe... This is being driven by the fact that people, this uptick in, in activity, or as it seems, is people are going, okay, there's another 50 basis points. And they were saying that a week ago. You know what? I have a rate hold. Maybe this is a rush like that. I don't know. Right. Or maybe, you know, who and, knows? And but, geographically speaking, we're talking primarily about the city of Vancouver, right? Where we're seeing a lot of activity. But I've been in multiples a few times. I lost uh, in multiples last night. Yeah. I had multiples on a, one of our listings last night that I dealt with, or yesterday afternoon, I should say. I lost in multiples as well earlier this week uh, on the buy side. There's stuff that's getting a lot. And, and it's not necessarily like even the bait price. It's it's good product that's priced, I think, sharp, yeah. right? And it's it's surprising. I mean, uh, the good stuff, it's like the the tier one stuff is moving quite quickly. And, yeah, and then uh, the tier two is sitting. That's exactly what I'm seeing. And, and as a final thought, Adam, 
multiples last night on one of our listings, multiples last night for me that I was unsuccessful. You were in multiples. Everything has subjects. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. no subject for <laughs> I that, That's one thing for, that's the big change here is right. nobody's going subject free. And it's funny how that, that slight change in the market, and I don't think it's necessarily that the banks have tightened up or might be a fear of appraisals not coming in right now. I don't even think that's it. It's just funny. Nobody is willing to take that risk right now. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, Matt, another 50 basis points today. So it'll be interesting to see if we go, if we have any kind of shock and awe from this, or if this was just so expected that it's already been worked into the market expectation over the past few weeks. No one, you know, everyone, everyone knew it was coming anyways. Well, and everybody knows there's going to be another one next month. So right. uh, it, it is what it is at this point. Maybe we should cut to our talk with Kit Sauter. If this doesn't wake you up, Right. Uh, in terms of where we've gone wrong on housing and, and a number of other things uh, in Vancouver. But uh, this is a, a very enlightening conversation, a very engaging conversation and an inspiring conversation. So glad to have Kit Sauter on the show. Yeah, there's going to be a lot more Kit Sauter fans uh, after this episode. So enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the lower mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sonehouse, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam, with 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds. Sonehouse offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Kit Sauter, Communications and Research at Advantage BC, also at the City of Vancouver's Renters Advisory Committee, and Principal at Sauter Strategy Consulting. How you doing, Kit? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Yeah, you wear a bunch of hats. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of like Spider-Man, right? Like you're always falling, but you, you try and make it look good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, maybe for our listeners that don't know about you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So right off the bat, because I'm sure that there's plenty of folks in Vancouver who are going to jump to these assumptions. I'm from the poor Sodders. Uh, <laughs> I jumped to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, 15 years ago when I was first dating my wife, like it was really cool to be able to lock down a table at Hawksworth when it was the most important <laughs> restaurant in the city. Because you'd call in and they'd be like, oh, Mr. Sauter, absolutely right away. We'll get you in in four minutes. Uh, but no, my, my dad and his brothers grew up in the docks in New West chasing each other and, uh, and then ended up, they were some of the last loggers in the Queen Charlotte. So just a classic 
BC family that came in from the prairies and grew up in the valley. And it still works at Nightingale, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, it does. Yeah. Getting into jam for a brunch, right? <laughs> yeah. So that out of the way. Uh, so I grew up out in, in the suburbs in White Rock. Graduated from Earl Marriott Secondary, played rugby, then went to UBC Okanagan, was one of the first graduating classes from UBCO out of Kelowna, studied uh, political science and philosophy, and then graded 2012. We were just at the beginning of the recovery, was one of those art students who like, do I go work at a Starbucks? Can I become an assistant at a law firm or an architecture firm, right? And ended up working in network security sales for one of my uncles. But I got a call like six months later, and it was the 2013 election. Christy Clark was 23 points behind in the polls. And Adrian Dix, if people remember the, the province spread at the beginning of the election, could have kicked a puppy and won the election. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a phone call from a buddy asking me if uh, I could take over a, a riding boundary in El Camino, uh, out south of Penticton and steward a campaign with a new candidate with collapsing polls in a riding that was 3,800 square kilometers because he knew I had family who were ranchers, a wife who was Russian, and I could handle Dukabors east of Anderson's Mountain. <laughs> and so went out there and convinced a bunch of ranchers that I at least knew what I was talking about for five weeks and got some votes and we won the election and I ended up being recommended to serve in the provincial government. So 23 years old, I ended up getting my first order in council appointment to advise the Minister of Education and then uh, spent four and a half years proudly serving the province. I worked in education for the longest teacher strike in the BCTF negotiations. They moved me over to Energy and Mines, where promptly the Mount Polly mine disaster, the largest environmental disaster in the history of the country, happened. Then we made the Site C decision. And then I moved over to Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation to support the minister in negotiating the Silcatine and William decisions. Uh, the Northern Gateway Pipeline, the uh, natural gas pipelines, the development of LNG with First Nations on the North Coast. Then over to transport and infrastructure for ICBC, BC Ferries Review, and the Uber decisions. And then uh, they thought that I was good at handling fires. So I got moved into emergency preparedness and response, supporting Naomi Yamamoto. And we handled two of the three worst flood and fire years in the history of the country. Fort Mac fire coordination, launch of the emergency alert cell broadcast system, and uh, Operation Coastal Response, which is the largest subnational emergency response coordination effort that has ever happened in the Americas, where we coordinated with the Pentagon and five U.S. states to practice what it would look like when the major Cascadia subduction event happened. So that was my first five years. And then we lost government. I came back here, moved into an East Van apartment and uh, married my college sweetheart and we had a kid. Wow. So and then you turned 28. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know I was going to I feel like I spent those years working at a Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> Matt's still at dreadlocks. Uh, so I'm just wondering, uh, are you busier now or were you busier then? I'm so like, and this is a shout out to all the current and former political staffers. There's, there's a lot of Canadians and British Columbians who are under the impression that everyone who works in politics is a bureaucrat. Our civil servants, our bureaucrats are generally speaking, very well-educated, diligent people. Staffers are troublemakers, right? They're the nuisance kids who like couldn't get an A in class, but were always volunteering on the different councils and stuff, right? Uh, and if they didn't end up working in politics, they probably would have gone into real estate or finance or, right, like the kind of thing where you get to hustle and make some calls and, and try and build your own name for yourself. And so those, those years were six days a week, 16 hours a day, 
falling asleep at your desk so you could be at the 7 a.m. meeting kind of thing, a lot of it. And that was part of why I stepped back from it, because there are folks who make entire 30-year careers working as staff, providing really good advice to our elected governments. But uh, for me, it was it was more about that privilege and that opportunity to serve for a term of service mm-hmm. and then being able to step away from that and, and try and cut my own path, hanging up a shingle, providing consulting advice, working in nonprofits. And just thinking about those years, I feel like the general kind of narrative, and maybe this is from Twitter and not altogether accurate, but a lot of people think back to the, to the liberal years and are kind of think of it poorly, you know, that there was a lot of issues you know, corruption, like the the casino, the money laundering stuff, like just being on the, in the back rooms, you know, seeing the sausage get made. Like what, what was your, as a, as a younger person in those rooms, were you like, I'm more optimistic coming out of this? Or was it like, wow, this is a really cynical kind of environment or, or what? I'm just curious. Cause you know, I'm, my only impression of this is the West Wing. So. Yeah, so I, I get in fights with a lot of activists uh, in politics across the spectrum, but particularly other liberals uh, about the shout out to the West Wing, because uh, <laughs> well, the West Wing is a fantastic Bush era fantasy of what could have been if George W. hadn't won. It's not very reflective of real politics. Uh, and if folks want a recommendation on where they should check out how absurd politics can really be, it's more in the thick of it from the yeah, UK. Sure. Uh, yes, Minister from the UK and then closer to home and more recently, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's uh, Veep. That level of kind of absurdity and sometimes egoism, while you still have people acting in it with super pure ideals and like these high arching objectives, it all kind of meshes together because our politics are reflective of our people. Right, right. So you'd go back and do it again? Uh, I would take the phone call and consider the offer. Um, <laughs> you I, heard it I, here first. Yeah, I, I think that we've had a couple decades of uh, public service and even holding elected office being run down in the public eye. I think that there's a lot of drivers behind that, demographic, social, economic. But when you look at kind of the 1990s and the end of history, we had a really long run of growing wealth, lots of opportunity for folks elsewhere, And quite frankly, not that many big problems Mm -hmm. that couldn't be kicked down the line. Right. And so I think that's where some of the legacy complaints are about former governments, regardless of political stripe over the last 30 years, is how could they not have seen this coming? Well, now we're governing in perpetual crisis. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have five, six, seven, eight, nine different crises barreling down on us every single day, whether you're talking about the poison drug crisis, whether you're talking about housing affordability, whether you're talking about being able to even just have a kid find childcare, right? All of those things. And then the other quieter ones like ecological collapse, uh, reconciliation with First Nations, how we continue to have an extractive economy, right? We have so many different issues that are super complicated to unknot. And at the end of the day, you've got a lot of folks who don't necessarily run for public office to tackle those problems, right? You've got folks who think, okay, I want to get a community center built. And then they get elected and it's like, okay, well, we're going to need you to review of 30 years of medical data for you to be able to make a decision on the way in which we place an OPS or how we square the financing for this issue for a highway. And that's out of scope and out of depth for I've got four years and I was hoping to get a park for my kid. Right. So we, we've all got to kind of hang together and give each other some more grace on um, the work that's being done. 
And we'll get to the Broadway plan, which we, which we, <laughs> was your original reason we brought you on, Kit, but I don't know if we'll get to it today. I'm just thinking, because before we started, you had an interesting comment about, you know, millennials wanting to, you know, okay, I got the sledgehammer. I'm, I'm ready to kind of break this wide open. And we actually talk about demographics a lot on this show and, and the problems in BC around demographics and housing. But can just, it, it was a really interesting comment about, the kind of generational shifts in local politics and how that's led to, I guess, complacency over the last, since the nineties and now kind of this perpetual crisis moment we're in. Can you, can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. So when you look at Western democracies and just for folks listening, the, the reason that I have any depth on this at all is because I was 17 years old and I volunteered on my first provincial political campaign and folks said, you know how to use a computer because you're under 20. And then I, developed a niche where I started doing demographic and voter ID trends and started cutting the numbers to be able to figure out how to get people to vote and what they would want to vote for, right? And so I've spent 15 years of my life doing backroom analysis on what's the census data, what's the layout on the ground, and how are things growing here? And one of the things that I've come to understand over that time period is the um, generational social economy of our society for almost all Western democracies, and particularly here in Canada and the United States, has been dominated by boomers since about 1978. Whether it was politics in elected office, whether it was senior corporate decision-making, whether it was volunteerism, arts, culture, didn't matter. Folks born roughly between 1956 and 1973 dominated the landscape for every year since 1978. Gen X was a much smaller generation and millennials are the children of boomers. And so now we're in this place where boomers worked hard. They survived the OPEC crisis. They moved through the debt crisis. They moved through the Nikkei crisis and, and the Asian collapse, right? But the broad trend lines for that entire time period have been growing wealth, growing dispersion of wealth, growing opportunity across almost all jurisdictions in North America continuously. The place that Gen X has come into is because they're a smaller group because they were the Pepsi generation, they got given false choices. Do you want Pepsi or do you want Coke, right? You're buying a brown cola. And so as you're working your way up in business and in enterprise, there are less folks to support you. There are less folks to play off of. There are less folks to invest in you who are of the same age cohort as the folks older than you. And then you've got millennials who are coming after the fact who are even larger than boomers. But the system that we've put in place has been set up to maintain the comfort and expectations of one generation who is healthier, longer lived and wealthier than any generation in the history of the world. And so it's taking longer for us to go through, if we're going to talk about markets, right, the creative destruction of the commons in which you have what in political science is referred to as a critical realignment. So the last time we saw a major critical realignment was kind of the Mulroney-Reagan era. Then we saw another one during the kind of Obama-Trudeau era, right? And so that was the beginning of this change. But it's not necessarily the case that those voter coalitions are going to stay the same because as of 2021, in North America, millennials became the plurality and the majority vote in a lot of locations, which means that for the first time in four decades, we've got a totally different group of people, two generations removed, with completely different social and economic and educational outcomes, trying to contest and deciding what the future of our society is. 
And that's going to necessarily drive conflict. Mm -hmm. So that description to me, the Broadway plan, and I'm thinking specifically of a debate I heard and I'm blanking on the the gentleman you were debating. Uh, Bill Thielman. And, Bill Thielman. Uh, and we were on Mike Smith. Mike Smith, right. So, but this to me seems like a, a microcosm discussion of that larger conflict in some ways, in that there's you representing the millennials, Bill Thielman clearly representing a boomer vision of of the Broadway plan. And you guys didn't see eye to eye on on basically anything. And I just want to add as well, as a renter who lives in the Broadway corridor. Yeah, that's right. And Bill is an owner who lives in Kits. Right. Right. And so, and this speaks to the way that like fundamental restructuring of our politics is undergoing, right? If you were to talk to a boomer or a Gen X, say three to five years ago, do you think a former major activist for the BC Federation of Labor and a former staffer for the NDP is going to be for or against the interest of renters? And do you think a former senior political advisor for the BC Liberals is going to be for or against the interests of single family homeowners? Right. You would get that answer wrong. Yeah. Right. 95% of people would get that answer wrong. And yet, because Bill and I are divided by 35, 40 years of age, his interests align more closely with the landed capital class. And my interests land more closely with the other 90% of people <laughs> who cannot find a home and raise a family. Right. So can we actually talk about the Broadway plan? And I, I think there's a lot of people that listen that are kind of aware of the Broadway plan in kind of broad strokes. Some people might have heard of it, but have no idea. Can we kind of unpack, you know, basically what is the Broadway plan? Yeah. So super high level summary on it. Broadway plan is a local area plan. Local area plans govern the zoning, permitting and management of development across the city of Vancouver and are required under the Local Government Act by the province of British Columbia. There's a lot of things that people might think they know about the politics of things. But just to clear it up, the province has effectively 100 percent control over the way cities get to do things in B.C. And that's true for all provinces across all of Canada. There's lots of folks who look at the United States and see the way the mayors of Chicago or L.A. or New York get to command and control growth and development, manage their executive offices and the budget lines and things like that. That's not the system we have here in Canada. And it doesn't help us to have these discussions, not understanding what the actual rules are. Right. So Broadway plans required, not just because we need local area plans, because it actually impacts, I think, seven historic local area plans, the majority of which were written in the late 1970s and 1980s. It's also required because there's a support agreement between the city, the province, and TransLink for the Broadway subway line. So the thing that's driving the decision-making process on the Broadway plan and the requirement for a plan to exist at all is the feds and the province gifted $2.43 billion of investment of Canadian and British Columbian taxpayer dollars to put a long overdue and much needed rapid transit subway under Broadway. The contest politically is whether or not the wealthy single family homeowners who currently live in that corridor get to have a $2.43 billion subway for free. That's the question that's being asked right now. Mm -hmm. On the side of maybe we should share our burden at the city level, the argument is the best way we can pay for this is with density. And so the proposal under the plan is to add substantial density at the station sites, although I would argue it doesn't go anywhere near far enough. And then moderating that density as you move away from the individual tower above the station until you get to a place where when you're looking at 
16th. So for context, the geography of the space runs from Vine to Clark, from the west side to the east side, and it runs from 16th to 1st, abutting False Creek. And so it's 8.9 square kilometers of the city, which the city's 115 square kilometers. So it's it's about 9% of the city's footprint. And critically, it covers the Mount Pleasant Tech District, the mixed industrial and commercial space around the False Creek area, the long-term False Creek co-op areas, which are much lauded and supported, and most importantly, the City Hall Junction and the VGH Medical Center, right? And, and that hospital district, when you take that context and you take the Broadway area and attach it to the downtown core, it's 15 square kilometers. It's one in four jobs in Metro Vancouver. It's one in six jobs in British Columbia. It's one in 12 jobs west of Ontario. And so when we're talking about, should we build here? Yeah, we should build here. Because I live in the southeast corner of the Broadway plan area, because when I look for a job, it's there. Right. It's right there. It's not anywhere else in the rest of Western Canada. And so that that is a really important thing for everyone who is still building their career, looking to build a future for their families. The jobs are right there. And so we shouldn't have people driving and we can get further into this later. But when we talk about VGH and the response to a demographic change where we've got older and older people, 25 percent of the city are over 65. We've got a pandemic. We've got uh, slowing birth rates, but folks also having births later. Right. I think that it's a mistake for us to have nurses driving in from Chilliwack and Hope, exhausted from a three-hour commute, then trying to provide basic and fundamental care. We shouldn't have doctors driving in from Squamish who have to do surgery or uh, provide anesthesia, right? Like, we, we are building a structure that is actually creating inequities and threats to our basic services because we're displacing people so substantially that they're arriving burnt out to jobs that are critically important to the health and safety of our society. Mm-hmm. Or potentially not even interested in working in Vancouver anymore. Which means that they might not even be interested in being British Columbians anymore, right? When I talk to my wife, who's a chemist who works for uh, one of the major paints and coating manufacturers in, in Canada, when we talk about, if not East Van, then where? We are not talking about Coquitlam, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about Calgary. We're talking about Toronto. We're talking about Berlin, right? And so the, the choices are, do we leave our province, leave our country? Because the pay is better elsewhere. The housing systems are better elsewhere. The daycare and childcare and education are comparable at least. And right. in childcare, they're substantially better. So we need to be able to tackle this problem head on because we're literally seeing the city hollow out. That's, that's a very interesting point because we've talked about basically driving until you can afford something, right? And I, I actually don't, I'm having that conversation with home buyers all the time right now. And it, it very much is that it's, it's, if we can't live in the city in Vancouver, it's not about going to Coquitlam or wherever. It's it's actually just leaving BC. Yeah, or go or potentially going to the island or somewhere else. But it's relocating to another urban area right. that the person can still have a lifestyle that they they want to have, which is a walkable lifestyle, close to restaurants, amenities, everything. Right. That's right. Can we? So it sounds like your take here is the Broadway plan. You know, the increasing density is 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 definitely required. It's not actually enough in your mind. Can we talk about what what this density looks like? So is it purpose-built rental? Is it a, a nice mix of, of strata with purpose-built rental? Is there any sort of requirements in terms of unit sizes, that type of thing? Yeah, so let's drill down on that. So one of the things that I deal with with the Renters Advisory Committee is folks, 
with very good intentions want to push really hard on let's get co-ops, let's get stratified social housing, let's get strict requirements on floor space ratios and how units even look, Mm -hmm. right? I, as we've canvassed, come from a slightly different political and economic philosophy. And I think that we are at the point where we do not have the capacity to be able to have the state pick up all the slack on this, right? We have never historically had the state provide the foundation of the housing supply. I don't think it's wise for us to try and start doing that now. When we talk about the social economic impacts, right? 1990, 23% of the provincial budget, thereabouts, was healthcare. It's over 60% now. But it's a lot bigger today than it was in 1990. And so we don't actually have the slack in our tax base as we have more people retiring. We don't have the slack in our economy to be able to drive the money necessary. There was a thread that went out this weekend on what's it cost to build a single family home in Vancouver. Yeah, right? I saw that. Yeah. A million dollars, right? When you talk to affordable housing developers, we're talking about 570 now with interest rates, maybe $730,000 per unit for a mid-rise apartment. So should the taxpayers be responsible for carrying the burden of housing folks? I don't think so. And we need to be tackling the problems up front, which is how long it takes to build, right? The Broadway plan, despite what folks might have heard during the debate, doesn't actually upzone anything, right? We're still doing spot zonings in Vancouver. We're Mm -hmm. still the slowest jurisdiction for approvals of any major city in the Americas, right? City of Vancouver has, as of last tally, 808 distinct zoning. I went and did a survey across North America of major cities. The average works out to about 112 zones. So we're 700 zones over. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to expect a newly graduated planning grad or an elected counselor to be able to navigate through what's the difference between RS4 and RS17. What's the difference between CD4 and CD22, right? Like, It doesn't make any sense that we have this completely complicated system. The Broadway plan moves to try and tackle that. Now, when we're talking about the specifics of it, you've got, I think, seven subway stations. I might be off by one or two. And not every single one of them, but almost all of them are in the Broadway plan area. On those, you would have the potential for an applicant to develop a building up to 40 stories. So we just saw 1477 West Broadway go through hearing an approval. I spoke to that in support. And it'll be 39 stories. And we're looking at, I think, 226 units. And a third of those units are going to be supported, right? And so you're either getting supported housing, subsidized housing, offsets, right? And depending on the scope and scale of the projects, you're going to see things like maybe you have BC housing or a nonprofit supporting specific supportive housing for long term, right? You've got the Heather Lands proposal, which is outside of scope of the Broadway plan as well. But you've got MST Development Corp effectively building a housing corp that has the capacity to get throughput, they're going to subsidize the cost of the units, get people into them, but they view it as a long-term 75-year, century-long investment in themselves, their nations, and the greater city and region. And they know they'll yield a return over time, right? And so the decisions that we have to make in the Broadway plan are, okay, we're looking at 40 stories. I've said to mayor and council, why not 80? We've seen five buildings in Brentwood just approved between 72 and 79 stories tall. There's granite that runs from Arbutus Street all the way to Pitt Lake, east of Coquitlam. And we know that it's physically possible to build on this corridor. But the compromises that are being made in the face of a lot of long-term, 
legacy single-family homeowners, mostly over 55, is we'll bring the towers down. We'll make them shorter. We'll make them squatter. We'll make sure that there's a 24 to 40 story tower. Then we'll make sure there's 12 to 18 story towers. Then we'll make, and I actually reject the premise that's being put forward by both our political leadership and our planning department, which is we can plan our way out of this. The thing that we need to do to tackle these problems, when you brought up, there's a bunch of millennials who want to swing a sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. We've faced problems like this over the course of the last 300 years where we've had a liberal democratic system, a free market system. You can go in two different directions that are both wrong, right? You can go to a place where you have cartels, where there's too much control, right? When we talk about real estate and development, we're at a place in Vancouver where I talk to small and mid-sized developers and builders. They live here. They do not do business in the city of Vancouver. We've had them on the show. Right. <laughs> the only people who can handle it are the largest developers who can handle a carrying cost of 7, 11, 14 years on a project with absolutely no political or financial certainty. And that's bad for the economy. It's bad for our general society. And it's bad for tackling the affordability framework. And so we have to go and back away from what got set up in the 1970s and 1980s, which is nothing anywhere at all until we get to fidget with where are your windows? How are your gables? I don't like the trellis that you're running down the side of this house. None of those things are pertinent or relevant in a city that's actually growing and thriving and focused on things that matter. It's only relevant to people who are stuck in their houses, have no entertainment, and are looking out their windows, seeing what their neighbors are up to. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020. So, 
you know, one thing that strikes me is specifically when you're talking about the, the, the complicated zoning situation we have in the city of Vancouver versus other places in North America. So we're worse off in terms of navigating at a city level. The other thing is, and you spoke to it a little bit there, you know, they're doing things in Burnaby that we're definitely not doing in Vancouver, which is, you know, my wife works in Burnaby. It's not like it's uh, across the country. Uh, Surrey is doing things that we're not doing in Vancouver. Is there something specific in the politics of Vancouver where we're getting it so wrong and people right next door who, if you met them in the, in Mexico, you'd say we're from the same city are getting it so much better? Yeah. So I think, again, this all hangs off of the demographic realities, right? Vancouver is older. It is whiter. It is vastly better educated than almost all of the suburbs. And it's richer. And so a lot of the presumptions that go into decision making when you have the folks who already make all the decisions in our society, right? A lot of our contemporaries, folks that we know, neighbors of ours, are the heads of the largest corporations in Western Canada, right? And so when they say they'd like something to slow down, people listen, right? The choices that are being made in Burnaby, right, where you're getting those high tower heights, right? That is a political trade-off. We're going to have no impact on the single-family home zones and areas. The city already has bisecting highways. There's like five of them, Mm -hmm. uh, including the number one. And so what we're going to do is we're going to generate revenue with height and density, typically in and around office parks. Although what ended up happening over the course of the last 10 years is it started impacting low-rise legacy apartment buildings. And that was what turned into the overthrow of the previous mayor, the breaking of the existing council system in Burnaby, because of the fact that people saw renters who had safe space not having the protections that they need. Surrey, on the other hand, has moved to a place where they've secured a single streamlined approval process. So instead of having the planning application and then the public hearing process, they do planning, zoning, hearing sequentially. And you can, I think, do the planning and zoning simultaneously. And so that saves four to seven months minimum on every single major project approval, right? One of the other things to consider is Vancouver weirdly has a lot of similarities with Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're the, it is strange. <laughs> we're the only two cities in North America that have an elected parks board. Uh, we are the only two cities in North America that have some shared geographic realities. And Minneapolis is currently being pointed to because they've had this like breakthrough on uh, housing affordability right. as a consequence of density. Minneapolis's council got elected running on, let's do missing middle. Yeah, Everyone in Vancouver who's been here for 15 years has been hearing that. There's been very little traction uh, and movement on it. And the problem here is that we've moved to a place where the market has outpaced what missing middle can be financialized. And so we have to move our expectations to what Minneapolis is now having to do, which is not just 120-foot frontage, six-story purpose-built, they're also doing 12-story affordable, right? And so you end up looking at how can we relieve the pressure? Because when we're talking about our families, right? My, my household is, depending on the year, between a hundred dollars and a $200,000 income household, right? The system we're in right now encourages and incentivizes me and my UBC-educated chemist wife to compete with someone who is divorced, temporarily housed and only has part-time work 
like filling grocery bags. That's fundamentally unfair. There's mm-hmm. no system that we should want to emulate that encourages a contest between a top 10 income household and the folks who need the most support from us, right? Like, and that's the place we're in in Vancouver. We have people who are building affordable housing units and there are folks who, for instance, own their own real estate company, own their own consultancy, are an accountant and, or an engineer. And if you've got your own corporate entity, maybe you can forego a year worth of income so that you can knock down the requirement because your spouse earns less than $90,000 a year. Right. So if you can get the household income for one year below $88,000, well, all of a sudden you can go on all the BC housing and city of Vancouver affordable housing lists. And that's something that I'm hearing from renters advocates and folks who are concerned about the impacts on this and affordable housing providers is we're seeing some really negative outcomes as a consequence of the fact that folks who should absolutely have the wealth to be able to find a rent, find a townhouse, buy a presale, now competing for state-sponsored affordable housing construction. And if we don't move with the Broadway plan to a place where the Vancouver plan can solve all of these problems all at once, we're going to continue to have this little drip drip of, okay, well, we built, we built 300 units, right? The mayor's been crowing over the last couple of months about 7,300 units, 4,700 of which were affordable. Well, the housing inventory that the province requires says that we're 86,400 behind, and that's just for underhoused people in Vancouver. And we've got 52,000 people that need to be housed inside of the next five years, which means that just to keep pace for the next decade, we'll have to build 14,470 units every single year. And we're not even at half that right now with the most investment from provincial and federal governments in 35 years. Is Minneapolis trying to get rid of their park board as well? <laughs> if you if you search hashtag abolish the park board, you will find the last two municipal elections in Minneapolis. Who who should decide what gets built? I think that's another contest that we're having, right? When when Bill Thielman and I were debating on CKNW, Bill is the king of referendums, right? That was unbelievable. Like part of it was, hey, we just need more consultation. And it's like, I, have you ever met anyone who's like, for something to get built in, in Vancouver, there's not enough engagement with the public. Uh, have we swung too far? Like, and, and that's because I, I feel like the critique used to be that there wasn't enough consultation. And now I feel like it's just insane, the level of consultation. Yeah. So let's look at the place that has the most democracy and the most consultation in North America, California, right? California has a prop and referenda system yeah. in which if you get, I think it's something silly, like a thousand signatures, like it's not even 10,000 signatures in a state that has more people than the entire country of Canada, you can get a proposal and then you have to get like 10 or 14,000 signatures to take it to the state legislature. But you can get anything on a state ballot, right? which because it's the United States goes in front of people like literally every 14 months. Like it's not even, it's not four years to an election. It's like 10 months, 14 months because you've got county board, you've got city electors, you've got your state legislature and senators. People are busy, right? People are too dang busy to be worried about the complex uh, housing and infrastructure concerns of their society. And the knee jerk reaction of almost everyone, almost all the time, unless they're a big nerd, is that question sounds hard. And I don't like it. And so they vote no. And so if we want a society that's able to move and duck and dive and dodge the issues that are coming for us, right? 
We lost all our rail lines and the Trans-Canada Highway less than a year ago. We had 700 people bake to death in a heat dome. And we are not moving fast enough to tackle these problems. And they're coming for us. And so we can't, quite frankly, afford to have four and a half years of consultation on a local planning initiative that's going to result in hundreds, if not thousands of hours of individual spot rezoning decisions that will replicate the process every single time. It's it's total nonsense. Mm -hmm. So we elect people in a representative democracy to lead us. 15 years of volunteering in politics, the number one thing I hear from people at the doors, all political stripes, all levels, I want my government to do its dang job and get out of my way. And I think it's time that we start electing people who do that for people. So just thinking about, you know, and, and it's often Adam and I talk about, you know, OK, maybe we're in an echo chamber, you know, all, all the things that we think are kind of um, or maybe I'll speak for myself, the kind of clear, logical, everybody thinks this way. Like the, the Bill Thielmans of the world, is it as cynical as it seems? Like the more consultation, uh, do we really need housing? You know, all, all the, the shadows, uh, the parks aren't actually going to be as nice as everybody says. Whatever the arguments are, seems so ridiculous to me. Do you see it as, as cynical as, as I do? Well, I can point to actual matters of the public record. Bill, during the course of the last month, went out and talked about how he wanted Parisian-style density and six-story walk-ups and affordable housing for all. But in the last 14 months, when council has had six-story walk-ups, purpose-built rentals, and affordable rentals both six and 12 stories tall, zoned for anywhere in the city, Bill has gone out publicly and opposed them. So I'm not going to ascribe motivation or value <laughs> to those things, but I think that people should look at the facts of opponents to these kind of decisions. And they're not easy decisions. And I'm not saying that government shouldn't listen to people. But we need to have governments that have the courage of their convictions to get elected, go through a hearing process, listen to the voters, and then take the time to make a wise decision, and then have the courage to lose their jobs. That's that's the end point of this. Elected officials are not supposed to be doing this for life. They're supposed to have the courage of their convictions and risk being fired because they made the right choice, not the choice that was in their political interest. Mm -hmm. We've touched on a lot of these, but I kind of want to summarize them a bit clearer for, for the listeners. What, what's at risk if we don't get this right? The risk is the, the inevitable collapse of the city of Vancouver. So, like, I'm not talking about Vancouver will cease to exist, but there's a 2014 study from the Conference Board of Canada that kind of started framing my thinking on this. I don't remember the exact number, but they basically did an analysis of Metro Vancouver at that point, which was a long way removed from where we are right now. And because we have basically a multi-centered region where we've got like seven major industrial and urban business districts, we were losing billions of dollars a year of gross domestic product and economic output because my father-in-law runs an electrical company, right? He's got to drive to Fraser Docks to pick up some goods. He's got to get over to Coquitlam Center to get the other contractor to sign off on some work. And then he's got to get over to the west side of Vancouver to actually do the project, right? And then you replicate that for every landscaper, every plumber, right? And we're in a place where we've got people who are spending more time driving to get their jobs done than they are doing their jobs as a region. 
the Broadway corridor is already the second most populous area by density in the entire province. It should be vastly denser because what we've seen is the intensifying climate impacts, the heat waves, the floods, the fires, right? If we have a landslide that cuts off three of five major provincial highways again, because it doesn't even need to be a massive flood, it can just be some slides, right? It can be a snowstorm in the middle of August on the Coquihalla, right? When we have those impacts, we have net cost drivers, right? The number one issue impacting people right now is the cost of living. And it is a heck of a lot easier to accommodate those costs to make smart choices. If you can walk out your front door and within 15 minutes, you've got your doctor, you've got a community clinic, you've got a pool for your kid, and you can choose between three to five different grocery stores, whether it's Whole Foods or a local East Asian convenience store where they've got really high quality goods at a lower cost than Whole Foods does, right? Like those are the choices that we need to make as a city. And the choices we've made for the last 30 years are no change, build condo towers for investors, feed the addiction of City Hall to CACs, right? Like that's another structural issue, Mm -hmm. which is we have to make some really tough choices about who's going to pay what, when, and where for the benefits we have. And how many people are we gonna allow to live here? And for me, my wife and I had our first kid before there was room for our child. My daughter, for the first 14 months of her life, was raised in a one-bedroom plus half-den in which my wife and I slept on the floor of our apartment so my daughter could learn how to sleep through the night. We have just enough room to consider having a second child right now, but we do not have two rooms for them. So we're figuring out, does the the next baby sleep in a crib at the end of our bed and we sleep on the floor in our living room again? How did they co-sleep when one's under three and one's five months old, right? Like, All of these choices are really tough and, quite frankly, I think unnecessary. And if we move ahead with the Broadway plan, going back to your earlier question around what does this deliver, right? The commitments in the Broadway plan have very robust renter protections. They guide a development plan and profile that encourages two-thirds of all development being focused on purpose-built, market, affordable, below-market, and non-market rental space. And they expand and extend the existing requirements under City of Vancouver uh, multiplex regs. So any any building with more than six units is required that 25% of those units must be two-bedroom plus. I live in an apartment that was built under those regulations, and I got a two-bedroom and den because it was built in my building. Out of 48 units, eight units have two-bed and den. The Broadway plan requires 10% three-bedroom plus. In the city of Vancouver right now, 1% of the rental stock has three bedrooms or more space. And so this will grab the market by the scruff of the neck and say, okay, you want to build? You absolutely can, but you must build to a height and a density that allows you to work out the economics of building three bedroom plus spaces so that actual families can live here. It's interesting. I met met someone earlier this week who had three kids who lives in Vancouver. And the first thing I thought was this guy's money. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That you, have to, that you have to, like, it's just a, it's, that's what having a family of five says now is, is you really have to have a lot of money in the city to do it. Yeah. And, and that undermines the future for our city, right? Exactly. One, one, of, one of the things that the opponents of the Broadway plan have been advocating on, one of the things that the city seniors advisory committee provided in comment to the Broadway plan 
was 25% of Vancouver are seniors. And because of that, and because they're the fastest growing demography in our city, we should frame all of our land use and decision-making processes from a political and policy perspective to focus on seniors. Now, this isn't particularly kind or generous of me, and I want to preface what I'm about to say with the fact that I acknowledge the hard work and determination that an entire generation of people have put into to building the city, the province, and the country that I live in. But it has been medically impossible, except for the last 30 years, for the largest demography of a complex society to be retirees, because that means that they're at the end of their life. And so for us to have folks under 15 years of age, under five years of age, be the most rapidly shrinking population, our babies and our children, and for seniors to be the oldest population, it means that we are a city in decline because we are not planning for the future. We are making the past comfortable. And that's an uncomfortable truth that we need to deal with. But I think that if you build a city in the case of three-bedroom-plus apartments, that prioritizes the interests and the needs of families, particularly families with children under five, you go an incredibly long way in also providing policy that supports people with disabilities and seniors. Because the needs of a small child, and this is not a direct parallel comparison, and their family often mean that you have the supports that are also helpful to individuals who have uh, different ability, who have short-sightedness, who may even have memory loss, because you're building a space that's safe for everyone. And so that's something that we also need to juggle. It's a super nuanced and emotionally fraught conversation, but we need to get to a place where someone can show up in Vancouver at 28 years old like me and not wait, for most people, 10 or 15 years to have their kid, right? The average age for birth for a family for first child in Vancouver, I think is getting close to 37 years of age, which is a long way from where the average was in the 1990s, where the birth rate for a family was like 24 to 26, 27 years old. Yeah, and, and it's a long way from Chilliwack. That's right. I understand, yeah. Are you optimistic that the Broadway plan gets gets through? Where, as I understand it, we're still, we're in the 19th day of, yeah, so we're on day four today. Okay, sorry. Uh, tomorrow's day You're five. You're close, a little hyperbolic. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's just of the public hearing, though, of course. And I think that when we left off, we were at speaker 126 of 202 public speakers at the end of last week. So we've got a lot of folks. Uh, city, when it's fast for these hearings, gets 12 people an hour because everyone gets five minutes. But if counselors ask questions then you're uh, you're looking at maybe six, seven people get to speak in an hour and then they've got questions from counsel. And at least one counselor I can think of will have questions for everybody. <laughs> Not going to name names, but... Yeah, so on, on my hopes and optimism, I think that the Vancouver plan is a different question, right? And we're running up against the Vancouver plan being tabled, I think, in less than two weeks from now inside of the timeline of the Broadway plan being decided. And... The thing that I've encouraged counsel to hear, the thing that I am encouraging others who speak with counsel to hear is you got elected to do a job. Unfairly, you had to govern our city through a plague, right? We had two and a half years of just absolute unmitigated disaster. Vancouver lost a bunch of revenue, had to temporarily lay off and permanently lay off a bunch of people. And Vancouver also had to support response to massive environmental events, when other cities in the region were impacted, right? 
So that that is a line driver cost for us deploying emergency medical personnel and first responders to provide support to Abbotsford and other locations. And so this council hasn't had an easy go of it by any means, and they deserve to take the time to make this call. But they extended the timeline for the consultation. It's now six, less than six months before the next election. They made that choice. They should also make the choice to make a decision and run the election on the decision that they made. This is maybe an unfair question, but upcoming election, what do you think happens? And then what do you hope happens? Uh, my presumption is that we, because of the incumbency effect, because of the number of existing candidates and parties, we're at 10 parties running in this election for sure right now. We've got at least five mayoral candidates, uh, 57 council candidates. So we're on track to beat the 74 that ran in 2018. So it's likely that what we end up seeing is we see nine of 10 councillors returned. And then there's one seat up for grabs because Councillor Hardwick's running against Mayor Stewart. And so there will be very little change in the composition of our council. And there might not be change in the mayor's seat. That's what I think the numbers show and what I'm seeing in the public discussion right now. There's a lot of folks who are campaigning on pet issues, but not really effectively communicating to the entire city, I think. What I hope for is that we see some change. What I hope for is, like folks said that the 2018 election was the change election. It wasn't. 2018 was a status quo. And you saw the same thing provincially in 2017. You saw the same thing with the minority parliament 2020 with the feds. Because what ended up happening was you had a deadlock between the two largest generations in human history. You had the boomers, you had the millennials, and they have completely divergent views on what things need to be done to help satisfy their needs politically. And so it's not that everyone's confused. It's that people are competing with each other. And we have a system to resolve that, and that is our elections. My hope, my ask, my encouragement is that every single person under 45 years of age, regardless of income, regardless of education, gets out and votes. We need to have elected officials who represent our interests, and we need to move to a place where we can respect and steward the legacy of folks who came before us while simultaneously planning for and encouraging the investment and the growth in our communities of younger generations. And just thinking about this at the city level, because I, I remember very clearly walking into the community center or wherever I voted in 2018 and looking at the laundry list of names and going, I don't know. Like, and, 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 and we actually, you know, had like Francis Buell on the show talking about it beforehand. And I was, I was like, I, this is, you're almost looking for recognition. And then you're like, what, what, what was the, like, it's so, it's like, if I saw your last name on there, I'd probably pick you. Cause I'm like, Oh, solder. Yeah. Like, it's crazy that that's, it, it's, it just seems like it's almost that that's the thing that I think of, you know, it's like, if everybody gets out and votes, it's almost unclear even how to figure out who, who the people. Yeah. And so like, I, I ran voter ID and get out the vote strategy for the most successful campaign in 2018, right? No longer affiliated with the NPA. I wish them luck in the campaign. I got the largest slate of women elected in the history of Vancouver. So I think that's some yeah. progress. It took me 16 minutes to vote, right? So if it took me 16 minutes yeah. as a guy who memorized all of the candidates in the city, what was that doing for the average voter? And I went after the election and looked, and we had one of the highest rates of roll-off of voters. Roll-off is a technical term for a voter walks in, they get their ballot, they go cross-eyed, they throw their ballot away, and they walk out. 
Yeah. Right. And so we had at least a couple thousand people who left. And we cannot say that it's because the ballot was too big. But I think it was. Yeah. And well, we, why else? Why would you make the trip? Why would you? Right. Like, what would be the alternative? And so it's all the little inconveniences of life, right? You get a phone call and you have to hop on a business meeting, right? And you're in the ballot box. You get a phone call and there's a medical emergency at home, right? When you have 285,000 people potentially voting, you're going to have a couple thousand people who have those little instances, sure. especially if the voting takes less or more than five minutes. Yeah. And so the council actually sent a letter around Vancouver Charter Amendments a while ago. And just this last week, city received notice from the province that their request to have the signatures required being moved from 25 to 100 signatures for nomination as a candidate was rejected. And so we're going to see the exact same issue this time around as we did last time. We're going to have, to quote Mario Canseco, who did some polling on this, we're going to have joke candidates. I was going to say, what, how many roller girls or whatever you see, and then you throw up your hands and throw up the ballot and walk out. Right. And so you're going to have joke candidates. You're going to have candidates who don't know that they're a joke. And you're going to have candidates who aren't funny enough to be a joke. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Circling back a little bit, and maybe this is the Broadway plan and the Vancouver plan, and just the, the two things that I feel like somebody out there is going, I can't believe they haven't brought this up. But in order to build, and this happened in Burnaby in Metrotown as well, the the issue of displacement mm. and the issue of, you know, speculative bonanzas driving up prices, right? That's the two things I think people are always, you know, legitimately concerned about when it comes to making fairly large scale change. Can, can you talk a little bit about, about that in the Broadway plan and then more generally how that we need to approach that? Yeah. So, I mean, first off, people are right not to trust their governments. That's a perfectly rational position for folks to take, regardless of everything that we've discussed today about my time in public service and supporting elected officials, blah, blah, blah. You should have a healthy skepticism of the decision-making of politicians because they have a bunch of competing interests that they're trying to meet and not all of them align with your interests, right? And that doesn't mean that they're corrupt. It doesn't mean that they're bad people. It means that they've got a difficult job to do and they've got political, commercial, partisan policy contests that go on with every decision they make. One of the decisions that was made by Vision Vancouver, right, we saw this ramp up ahead of the Olympics by higher levels of government was let's build condo towers because that way we can mitigate the impacts to single family homes. And what ended up happening because there weren't robust enough protections, there weren't strong enough policy drivers enforcing unit sizes and things like that, is we saw a lot of those units go to families who live in the city. Right. We drove a, a very large population growth through the 2010s. We also saw speculative investment as a consequence of that because high rise condo towers cost a lot of money to make, which means there's a lot of money to make off of them. And so that's one consideration. The policy square we have to look at in the context of the Broadway plan, and the Vancouver plan, the choices that are being made by other cities in the region, other cities across the continent is we've tinkered around the edges. Maybe it's time to do something big and all at once, because if we continue to try and tinker every three to seven years, oh, we're going to do a trial period. We're going to add 2,800 homes that can build multiplexes like the mayor's proposal for the fourplex, sixplex idea. Right. We know what the public polling is. The public polling says that if you build a building that looks a lot like a 1928 craftsman and can house six families in it, no one's going to blink an eye. We know that building four to six story purpose-built rentals 
on arterials is opposed by less than like 15% of all Vancouverites. We know that if you build mass timber under 12 stories to provide mixed affordable housing, right, not singularly SROs, but families like mine and folks who are down on their luck all in one neighborhood, that it mitigates the social impacts in the area. It builds enough density to offset the problem. And we've got to contextualize this, right? There are less than 6,000 homeless people in all of British Columbia. And about 3,100 of them, 2,700 of them live in Vancouver. So we're not actually talking about that many units of housing to address one of these other crises that we mentioned earlier. But we shouldn't be building policy frameworks that only serve the interests of the top 1% of income earners and the bottom 15% of income Mm. earners. Our society is made of many people from many income groups. And the place that we're living in right now, the policy choices that we're facing, we're driving towards a city of mansion districts for millionaires and government housing for a permanent underclass. And that's not okay. That's not what Canadians like. That's not what Vancouverites dream of. And it's certainly not what people who immigrate to this country imagine when they're arriving here. We've got this segment called the Five Wire. Five quick questions about uh, lighthearted questions to end the show. And I think that was a, a maybe a, a good time to go out on uh, on this conversation. But can you stick around for that? Yeah, 100%. Okay. So question number one for you, Kit, is um, one book you would recommend for our listeners? Yeah, so it's not one book. I'm going to break the rule right out, right out of the gate. Uh, it's a series. It's by an author called Yuval Noah Harari. And he's written a, ser- written a series of books. The one, if it's just one book that I want folks to check out, is called 21 Questions for the 21st Century. But he's also written two large books prior to that that are called Homo or Sapiens. Oh, right. Yeah, Homo yeah, yeah, I was thinking about the name here. Right. Yeah. And 21 Questions for the 21st Century tackles a lot of big things, really big things, like what is happening with the way our society operates with technology advancing at a pace that our brains can't compute, what's going on with large, complex agricultural development and trade, like those kind of things. And so if you want to get out of the grind and whatever you're working on and think about something epic, that's it. Fantastic. We got a new question for you. You are on death row. What's your last meal? Yeah, it's probably going to be my wife's pluff which is a Russian goulash, like rice, meat, carrots. Like it's, it's very like home cooking food. I was thinking Hawksworth. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> that'd be his last reservation. Uh, <laughs> number three, what have you been binge watching lately or a favorite movie recommendation? Yeah. So, I mean, I've got a two and a half year old, so I've been been watching the entire Cars series for the last <laughs> 18 months. Do you have a little boy or a little girl? A little girl. Yeah. Little girl. She, she likes cars. She likes things that go fast. She likes fire trucks and uh, she likes building. So uh, she might be an engineer or a builder someday. Have you tackled Encanto yet? Uh, we have. She's not that big a fan of Disney musicals. Interesting. Uh, which I find surprising. Yeah. I grew up doing musical theater and she's like, not, she's not into it. Wow. Both of those comments surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite band or music? Yeah. So my like go-to right now when I have a chance to just decompress is I'm listening through the whole discography of Coulter Wall. He's a Southern Saskatchewan boy. 
son of former Premier Brad Wall. Oh, wow. But uh, for folks who really like like mid 20th century, the crossover between like classic country and uh, bluegrass revival, right? When we're talking about like Nash and that kind of deep vibrato voice and like really jangly uh, strumming technique. The beer market sessions uh, for Coulter Wall on YouTube are great. And all of his albums, although Extraordinary Appalachia is a really good one. I guarantee Matt spends like four hours on YouTube with this guy. I was, was going to see the wheels turning. Like, uh-huh. Okay, go yeah. on. Yes. Uh, jangly? Yes. Uh, okay. Jangly. <laughs> Did you say tall boys? Did you say something about beer? <laughs> And last but not least, something you've purchased for under $1,500 that's uh, had a positive impact on your life in the last few years. Yeah. So right after leaving government in 2017, uh, moved to the city and waited until there was a good uh, bike sale and managed to nab like a nearly $3,000 bike for like $1,270. Wow. And so got a cyclocross. I've just been slowly improving it, but... uh, through most of the pandemic, I did a ride all the way out to the point, right? So I'd ride from my place out near Fraser and then do about 45K out to the Museum of Anthropology and then back along like 49th. So do the West 10th and then take yeah, the circuit. Yeah. And so that's been great. And then I bike commute uh, to work most days into the office. So that's been the biggest like impact uh, for quality of life. And I'm trying to convince my wife to purchase like a a long tail e-bike so that we can start uh, tooling around, going down to the beach and stuff with with her daughter. Right on. Well, uh, you got to find out more about what you're doing. How can people, I know you're big on Twitter. Uh, you're a good, great guy to follow, but how can people find out more about what you're doing and, uh, and learn to think more about breaking government here? <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> yeah, we got we to gotta break, some, break some stones to build them up. So you can find my rambling thoughts and commentary on uh, Twitter at at Kit Sauter. But uh, my day job is with a nonprofit focused on sustainable finance policy to tackle the climate crisis called Advantage BC. You can find our website at advantagebc.ca. We're doing some really exciting work right now on uh, property assessed clean energy policy, which I think your listeners, builders, real estate folks would have a lot of interest in because more than a third of emissions in uh, the province of British Columbia are part of the built environment. So either the building and construction of things or the heating, cooling and cooking inside of buildings. And so property assessed clean energy is used in the United States to help move on that issue. And we've got 25 years to get to net zero by 2050. And most of that building stock is only going to be retrofitted once. So we got to get policy in place that can help the market solve the problems that it made. Fantastic. Well, sounds like the next episode, uh, if you have the time. I'd love to. Thanks so much, Kit. That was a, that was a fantastic conversation. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Kit Sauter, advocate for the Broadway line, first and foremost, right. communications and research at Advantage BC, City of Vancouver's Renters Advisory Committee and Principal at Sauter Strategy Consulting. Man, that one floored me. Yeah. I got to say, that was a, that conversation absolutely floored me. I know. We kind of, we you go through the gamut of emotions uh, talking about all these issues. And, and I feel like, and I mean, this probably came out in the show. But I feel like everyone I'm talking to right now, myself included, is feeling like this last run-up of real estate prices, this 30-40% rent increase, the amount of rental stock, like it's all coming to a head and it's been hard for a lot of people in Vancouver for a lot of long time, but 
man, is the middle getting pinched in this way that's like so crazy. It's like it's and and again, we were talking about it afterwards with Kit, and we were also talking about it with uh, the guys from Zonda. But I think what's what's it, how pervasive it is. It used to be that you would hear stories about people leaving love Read, letter to yeah, the city. Right now, every single person has someone in their sphere or or group of friends that is just like you know what I'm I'm done. And people that are are major players in kind of the fabric of the city, I would say. Yeah, and this has always been the case as well. But it, it for some reason now it's it's just I look at some of the teachers who have been working for 15 years in, in the school system sure. and, and living in basement apartments and worried about getting evicted and, and no hope of ever owning a home and no hope of, of even having a secure rental. It's right. like, man, this is, we're in, we're in dire straits. There's yeah. no question about it. Yeah. Yeah. The fall election can't come soon enough and get out and vote and uh, definitely learn uh, who's advocating for what. And uh, it'll be an interesting uh, election for sure. The fall millennials is your moment. So take it. That's take for it. sure. Yeah, for sure. Matt, what else do we have before we cut for the day? Before we cut for the day, we have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com where you can sign up for things like the Live Wire. This is our weekly newsletter. The stats are going to come out today or tomorrow. You'll be the first to receive them. You also get stats that nobody else has. Sales ratios for all those different submarkets in the city. We got deal of the month. We got VIP access to pre-sales, residential and commercial assignments on there. I mean, it's there's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. We also have tried and true private client services. Because Matt, if you're not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips. It's at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com slash PCS. You can sign up for your free account. I just want to put it out there that there's probably no better time than now to be on PCS. If you are one of these people that you're looking for some softening in, in terms of pricing and sub areas or areas that you want to monitor because those sold prices come in real time. Well, and, and you can actually gauge what the market's doing. The sold prices come in real time. You see days on market. You also, it alerts you to price changes, right. price changes. It's the best way to monitor a specific market that you're interested in. There's no question about it. For sure. So give a, one of us a call or you can sign up at, uh, or send an email info at Vancouver real estate podcast.com. And Matt, if people want to get in touch with you, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And of course, we have that Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Well, have a great week, guys. And next week, we're back with another fantastic episode. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. 